We're in a series on um, the biblical worldview and mindset. Um, and I've explained that several times, but let me remind you again that the worldview is a concept on how God sees the world versus how mankind sees the world. That was its original use. We now really have God's worldview and men's worldviews uh, in that sense. God's is still singular, but uh, the human perspective since Babel has shifted into multiple ones. And a mindset is really what you set your mind towards with regard to commitment to intentional living. Now, we have people who set their mind on their emotions. We have people who set their minds on the culture. We have people who set their minds on the media. We are to set our minds on uh, the scriptures and on the process of God that we might walk in his ways. Uh, so as we've done this, I've talked about the worldviews that have been part of the Western culture. And I suggested all through the series that none of these are biblical worldviews, uh, though many Christians hold, hold to them. The earliest one, uh, the ancient world ones, was the Greco-Roman worldview, uh, the worldview of Greece and Rome that really dominated at the time that the Lord came. And then the Judeo-Christian one, which uh, we'll talk more about that later, but that one was a distinct and separate worldview in the first century. Around the third and fourth century, those worldviews began to merge, particularly under Augustine. And what we ended up with is a, a, a mixed worldview that became the worldview of the Middle Ages up until the time of the Renaissance. At the time of the Renaissance, the Reformation, and the Enlightenment, three worldviews dominated. The first one was a secular, human-based worldview that came out of the Enlightenment, and it split the church. Because of science, half of the church said, we're going to go with science and keep what part of the Bible we can. And the other part said, we're going to keep the Bible and we'll take from science what we can. And that's the difference between the liberal Christian churches and the conservative Christian churches. And that became the, the dominance of the modern worldviews. Secular, liberal religious, and conservative religious. In the 1960s, we moved into what's called a post-modern world, and a new set of worldviews developed. And those are very relativistic and very feeling-based, and there's both an atheistic one, a secular one, and a religious one. Now, these last five, the three modern ones and the two post-modern ones, are presently tearing America apart as people fit into all five of those. We have secular, modern people. We have liberally religious people who are modern, and we have uh, modern conservative religious people. And then we have postmoderns that are both religious and non-religious. And they view the world very, very differently. None of those, including the conservative religious one, is the biblical worldview. The primary difference between the liberal and the conservative religious worldviews at the present time is political and not biblical. Those who are uh, liberal politically tend to be liberal theo theologically, and those who are conservative politically tend to be conservative theologically. And it's not the theology driving it, it's the politics driving it. And that's been true since the uh, period that created the religious right and got the idea that we could change things for Christ on the basis of politics. So, 
We now live in what is called a post-Christian world, uh, and that has become a problem. Uh, I talked about that last week. I won't talk about that anymore. But, but we as Christians in a post-modern, post-Christian world have two challenges that we have to face. One of those challenges is the threat of assimilation. Each generation is becoming less and less like the last generation religiously and more and more like the world. Uh, I just have to go to Cal Baptist and look at the students that are coming in who have very little knowledge of the scriptures, but a lot of knowledge of their relationship with Jesus. And their relationship with Jesus is just like their, their, their secular counterpart's relationship with a good friend. And uh, it sometimes affects their life, it sometimes doesn't affect their life, but they're basically doing the same thing whether they're believers or not believers, they just have Bible verses to add on to that. So the threat of assimilation, becoming part of the world, is a big issue. And those of you who are parents and grandparents have to decide whether or not you're going to try to curb that process or you're just going to let it happen. Uh, more and more um, uh, young people in evangelical churches are committed to value systems that are not biblically based uh, because their friends are committed to value systems not biblically based. That assimilation process is going on. The other uh, issue that's not as significant in America yet but may get there is the threat of persecution. In America, we're not really being persecuted. We're being shoved to the margins. We're being shoved out of the public arena. But we are not being persecuted the way Christians are being persecuted around the world. And you know with the, with the recent beheadings, um, not only of journalists, but of Christians around the world, uh, for a long time Christians would look at the book of Revelation that talked about beheadings uh, of believers uh, for their testimony of Jesus, and we thought that was first century. But the first century didn't have beheadings. That's a prophecy of what's coming, and we may be entering into that, that framework. So it's important for us to keep that in mind. So the attempt at a political answer to this problem has already failed. And for the most part, what has happened is, as the religious right has tried to be political, and I talked about this last week, and get Christian presidents and Christian senators and Christian people in politics, what tends to happen is they compromise or uh, there is a backlash. And in that backlash, we end up losing more than we gain. And so the political answer is not the answer. God says that it's not by might, not by power, that is authority, but by my spirit, uh, says the Lord. So, uh, we really need to find an answer to this challenge. And the answer to that challenge is to retrieve the biblical worldview and to instill it in ourselves and in our children and in our converts. So today I want to talk about how we lost the biblical worldview and then what it is and how we return to it. And then beginning next week, I'm going to begin to exactly look at the biblical worldview, the content of the biblical worldview, so you can begin to see whether that's in your thinking or not in your thinking. So I want to start with the worldview of God. The worldview of God was in the creation in the Garden of Eden. All Adam and Eve knew was what God told them. 
And the biblical worldview is to know what God tells you in the context that God tells you. They were in a garden made by God. They were the people made by God. They had been given commandments by God. And they were sustained by God. All they knew was what God had told them. They had the worldview of God in their view of reality. And then came Satan. And Satan came in and gave them an alternative worldview. And in that alternative worldview, they began to see things differently and fall into sin. And in that sin, having their eyes open and now a struggle with good and evil and deciding for themselves what is right and wrong. And as a result, they were removed from the garden. And what happened after that was their children, one of them killed the other one. And they had another child and those children divided into two groups. The line of Cain that that went their own way with their own worldview. And the line of Seth that called upon the name of the Lord. And if you read those genealogies, you see a very different uh, notion between, for example, Enoch, the son of Cain, who has a city built after him, fame and success, and a Enoch that walked with God and was not, for God took him. And then when you follow down to them, we get an intermarriage between those two lines and a corruption requiring the flood. After the flood, Noah's children continue on this line of a non-biblical worldview. And what happens is they become the world. And they decide they're going to build a city whose tower reaches to God. And they will be united and they will protect themselves. Babel. And God comes down and he shatters the languages. Sends them throughout the world into nations. And those nations ever since have been warring with each other. Because we don't trust those who are different than us. So after Babel, each nation had its own worldview. The worldview was contained in the people, the language, the culture, religion that they had, and the environment that they maintained. They distrusted each other, and their norm was war. Now God is going to reintroduce his worldview. His worldview gets reintroduced, and I'd like you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. This is when God begins the process of, a, of reintroducing His perspective and His plan and His will into the world. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Out of this chaos of the nations, God chooses a man. His name is Avram. We know him as Abraham. And He says, The Lord said to Avram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and, I, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now here's what God says. I'm going to reintroduce my worldview. Abraham, I'm going to do it through you, and you're going to be the people Through which I'm going to do this. So Abraham is called by God to create a people. Who will ultimately be the children of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Whose name is changed to Israel. The children of Israel. Who will become a nation under Moses. And will be given the oracles of God. 
so that God's worldview will be seen in this people and they will be a light to the nations and those who, who, who see that light and come to that light and bless that light will be blessed and those who curse that light and walk their own way will be cursed. Now this people is tied to a land. In Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2 beginning at verse 2. The scripture says, Now it will come about in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. He's talking about the temple mount. In other words, that mountain that the temple sat on is going to rise up. This is going to happen when the Lord returns. That mountain is going to rise up and be the tallest mountain. And it's going to be the place from which God's reign will take place. And it says it will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Those who have seen that light will stream to it at that time. And they will say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And He will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. That's the goal. The goal is not to go to heaven. The goal is for heaven to come to earth, and the Lord to be the Lord over all the earth, and the nations to come to Jerusalem and obey the commandments of the Lord. Jesus didn't come to get rid of them. And that's what we're headed for. So we have the calling of Abraham as a people, Israel that will be the light. And then we have the land that is part of the central structure of God's redeeming and and, uh, establishing His glory in all the earth. Now there's a language associated with the biblical worldview. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 26. Now I'm using the New Testament here uh, because if because of certain theological structures, if I go to the Old Testament, people will go, well, that's the Old Testament, as if it doesn't matter. We'll talk about that in a bit. So I'm going to the New Testament. In the New Testament, chapter 26, verse 14, the Apostle Paul is speaking before the king, and he is on trial, and he is giving his testimony. And in verse 12, he uh, says this, while I was engaged uh, as I was journeying uh, to Damascus. Now he's going to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests, who are Sadducees, to go against the Christians and the Jewish believers in Jesus to put them into jail. He's persecuting the church. He says, at midday, O king, I saw... Uh, On the way, a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me, and those who were journeying with me. 
And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. Now I want you to catch something. Jesus is about to speak to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is fully conversant in Greek. He writes in Greek. He speaks in Greek in most of what he does. But he isn't spoken to in Greek. He's spoken to in Hebrew. Because the language of the revelation of God is Hebrew. Now, the foundational text is Hebrew. That's why synagogues keep a Hebrew Torah scroll in front of them. And you'll say, well, but Pastor Bruce, the Gospels are in Greek. The New Testament's in Greek. Yes, they are. They're in Greek, written by Hebrew speakers. Now, if you read a book in English by a native Spanish speaker, the worldview that they are using is their Spanish worldview. So the Hebrew worldview is contained in the Hebrew language for the purpose of maintaining God's worldview in a world post-Babel that has a million languages and everybody sees things in their own context. Then God gave the worldview within a cultural religious framework. In early times, every culture had their own God. So religion and culture were merged. It's in the modern world that religion and culture are separated. I want to talk about them together because that's how God gave them. The religion of the disciples of Jesus was Judaism. The religion of Jesus was Judaism. Torah, temple, Judaism. The religion of the Gentiles who came to the Messiah in the first century was Judaism. It was adapted to their status as Gentiles, as God-fearers who were not circumcised. But it was Judaism nonetheless. The context for religious observance was Judaism. And Christians, as they were called in Antioch, were part of Judaism as God-fearers. There will be no Christianity. There will be Christians. But there will be no Christianity for several hundred years. The religion of the early believers and the early church was Judaism. Adapted adapted in two ways. One, for Gentile identity. And two, for being outside of the land where you didn't have access to the temple. Till the temple is destroyed, then no one has access to the temple. So, the worldview that would be experienced by Israel and through Israel enlightening the nations... Uh, towards the promises that God made to Abraham involved a people, a language, a culture, religion, and a land. And they are the context of this testimony of God in what we call the Older Testament. And it is the same context as the testimony that we call the New Testimony or the New Testament in, in the Gospels and the Epistles. To read those scriptures... Outside of that worldview is to read them at the very least in error and at worst completely missing the point. Now I'm not going to argue 
as some do, that Christianity got everything wrong. It didn't. But it got many things in such a way that the emphasis was on the wrong syllable. Okay? And Judaism, when it ultimately split with Christianity as well, did the same thing so that in Judaism there is very valuable stuff and there is also some stuff that we could probably do without. But I don't want to throw the Torah out with the bathwater and I don't want to throw the gospel out with the baptism water, if you know what I mean. Okay? What I want to try to do is retrieve and reclaim that biblical uh, uh, worldview. Because the biblical worldview is the worldview of God. But the Bible alone is not the biblical worldview. That's why it's possible to use Bible verses and be so far from God as to be on the other side of the universe. The Bible alone is not sufficient. We need the Bible in its context... And we need the illumination of the Holy Spirit that's been given to Israel and to the church, not to individuals. Given to the body of the Messiah, the people of God, to reason together and to struggle with it so that we don't do what's right in our own eyes and use our own individual interpretation of the scriptures. That's arrogance. So, I want you to see that this is Paul's argument. So if you will turn with me to Romans chapter 3. And if I had time, we'd talk about uh, a lot of Romans because Paul really unfolds this uh, in the book of Romans. The book of Romans is so poorly interpreted in in many commentaries because they're focused on the gospel And Paul's not focused on the gospel. He's focused on the plan of God to which the gospel applies. And it's not the same. They miss the context. So in chapter 3, Paul says this, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Having read the first three chapters, one of the things that Paul complains about is that the Jews aren't doing what they're supposed to do. He says, you're a Jew? You're a teacher of the blind? You're a light to the nations? When you tell them not to steal, do you steal? So Paul's argument is, hey Israel, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. And he says, we are the true Jews, not talking about we Christians, we Jews who are obedient to the commandments of God and understand the Messiah. We are the the heart of what Israel is about. But I want you to know that even when God, when Israel doesn't obey the commandments, doesn't keep the covenants, God keeps the covenants so that their punishment shows that God is the God of Israel. Because he chastens every son of God. Whom he loves. So difficulty for Israel is not a sign that they have been rejected by God. It's a sign that they are his and he's not going to allow them to run amok. By the way, we have that same warning. Okay? So Paul's argument is the Jew has an advantage. Look at verse 2. The advantage of being a Jew and the advantage of being circumcised is great in every respect. First of all, he says... They were entrusted with the oracles of God. Where did the scriptures come from? 
that came from the Jewish people. The Jewish scriptures, and both of these are Jewish scriptures, written by Jews, to Jews, for Jews, and extended to the Gentiles. Those texts come out of that people, and they have struggled with them, and known them, and known God, and obeyed them, and struggled with the obedience of that, so that they have an experience that's based on that biblical worldview that the Gentiles didn't have. We were without hope and without God in the world. We have backgrounds that come from Babel. They have backgrounds that come from Sinai. And we're all headed for the new Jerusalem at the end of time. So, he tells us that there is an advantage. Now, I have a lot of Jewish friends who say, Oh, uh, we have an advantage, we're Jewish. And I say, you don't have an advantage. What do you mean I don't have an advantage? Well, you're not obedient to the Torah. You think the covenants are gone. You're just like the rest of the Christians. The advantage of a Jew is the advantage of knowing Torah, knowing Hebrew, knowing the land, knowing the context, and seeing the, 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 the commandments of God in that context. That's the advantage. And if you have an assimilated Jew, he has no advantage. He just has the gift of assumption. And that makes him identical to Christians. Because we have the gift of assumption. Whatever I think is God talking to me. So, I don't have time to go through all of them, but turn up to Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. In chapter 9, Paul is lamenting his grief that his fellow Jews, many of which have not accepted the Messiah, to see that God's promises are beginning to be fulfilled in the Messiah, he laments that because they are in part unable to see that. And he says, it's understandable, this is a biblical pattern, but it breaks my heart to see that happen. And then he says, but there's a remnant, and that remnant is going to be maintained by God. And that remnant may not even have a full understanding of Messiah, but they are God's people and and God is maintaining them. So then in chapter 10, he says, My heart's desire and prayer for them is their salvation. Because they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. So what Paul's saying is, in this Torah, there are two kinds of faith. And we can talk about that, but he talks about it in Romans. Two kinds of faith. There's one faith that says, I will trust God, and I will believe what God says, and God will get me through, and then I will struggle as a result of that faith to obey God until the time comes when he brings everything to pass. That's the Abrahamic faith. God, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. There's another kind of righteousness. That righteousness says, okay, what's the rules? Oh, I don't do that? Okay. I do that? Okay. Well, how much do I have to do it? Well, I'm doing it better than he is. I'm doing it better than he is. And they establish their own righteousness. Okay? The Torah was never intended to establish righteousness based on obedience it was uh, at least in terms of salvation but in the struggle to obey god 
But that comes after faith. I'm only going to obey his word if I believe that he is God and that he will bless those who obey him. Your children don't say, if I obey you, I'm your kids. And if I don't obey you, I'm not your kids. They say, I'm your kids. When I obey you, you do good for me. And when I don't obey you, you do bad for me. That's the purpose of the Torah. But Paul says some of the Jews got this wrong and they think they can establish their own righteousness before God for salvation. Well, let me tell you, there are some Christians who think the same thing. They think by their obedience, God owes them salvation. God owes nobody salvation. Okay? But by obedience, the blessing of God comes. And by disobedience, the correction of God comes. That's what this is for. This is not for salvation. The good news is that the salvation of God that comes by faith has now been manifest before all men. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And Paul says the Jews aren't getting it. And he says partly they're not getting it because God's blinded them. And thank God for that. Because he's blinded them. So that you and I can get in. If Israel fully accepted the Messiah, we'd be in the kingdom and you and I would have been shut out. But because they've been delayed in that understanding, we are being let in. And he says, therefore, don't boast against those natural branches. You say, yeah, but they were kicked out and I was grafted in. He says, yeah, be by faith. And if you stop your faith, out you go. And God will re uh, graft them in. And if an unnatural branch thrives in that root, what do you think a natural branch will do? And he says, the day is coming when all Israel will be saved. So for the gospel's sake, they are enemies. But for the election of God based on the fathers, they are beloved. So don't boast against them. After he says all that in chapter 12, he says, now you, my brethren, by the mercies of God, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let's get the biblical worldview back in place. Quit thinking like the world. Don't be conformed to the world. You need to think like God. And what we're doing is we're busy doing other things. Now, what are the other things we're doing? Well, we're engaged in an intentional or de facto replacement theology. The Jews aren't the people of God anymore. We are. God's an American. Jesus was born in Oklahoma. And I think he's a Republican. Okay? That kind of replacement theology just completely obliterates any accurate understanding of the scriptures. We don't need Hebrew. In fact, we don't even need Greek. What we need is an is a English Bible that I like. And so I'm going to read through the translations. And when I find a verse that's written the way I like that verse to be written, that's the translation I'm going to use. And you go to many churches, they put the verses up on the, on the screen. And it's from this translation, and then it's from this translation, and from this translation. And I guarantee you, the pastor's not doing that because those are the most accurate translations of that verse. It's because that version of the Bible says the verse the way he wants for his sermon. So he can be relevant to this culture. So we've replaced the people of God and we've replaced the language of God. We've also replaced the culture and religion of God. We now have a thing where the whole purpose of, of God is not for me to die to self and walk after the Lord and obey Him and glorify Him. But it's for me to be blessed by God. 
Whatever I do, I'm going to do great things for God. And God will bless me in that. And I'll be, I'll be famous. That's the world's approach. And the land, who needs the land? We don't need the land. Maybe Rome is the place of God. Maybe Orange County is the place of God. I know some people that think Oklahoma is the place of God. The promised land. Now they say it jokingly, but they live as if that's it. When the truth is that holy land is the land of God and it's part of what he's doing and what his plan is. So our problem is we have to uh, understand that the churches have ignored the land promises and replaced them with the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom from heaven. You talk to Chris all that they can't wait to go to heaven. Well, Let me remind you of a couple of series ago. When you die, you're not going to the new Jerusalem. You're not going to be dancing on streets of gold and hanging out with your friends. You're going to be in somewhat of a waiting thing, disembodied, waiting for the resurrection. Because the resurrection is when all of these promises will happen. And then once that restitution is done, this heaven and earth will pass away. And then the new heaven and earth with the new Jerusalem is going to take place. But what we've done is said, I just can't wait to get out of here and get rid of this body. And this body has purpose. And this earth has purpose for the glorification of God in the last day when that mountain is raised high and the temple is there and the sacrifices are done and everything that this says will be done. Jesus said, I came to fulfill, bring to full operation everything that's in the Torah. Not one jot, not one tittle shall pass until heaven and earth goes away. And it won't go away till the end of that time. So we have really messed up the theology and religion of the biblical worldview. So what do we do? I'm going to do this part real quick because I'm getting to the end. First thing we have to do is we have to reconnect with the Jewish people. Now in this congregation, we've been doing it. I don't just mean the Jewish people in the Messianic movement. We must reconnect with the Jewish people completely. Now, I believe tomorrow night is the Chabad Telethon. That's a good time to participate and bless Israel. There's always a need to know people. I I try to know people in Jerusalem, know Jewish people in all of the various traditions of Judaism to reconnect with the people of God. The Bible says in the last days, seven Gentiles will grab hold of the tzitzi of a Jew. And say, we have heard that God is among you. Well, how is that going to happen if God's not among them? We've got to get our theology straight. Secondly, we have to reconnect with the Hebrew language. I am so grateful that even now our children are being exposed to the Hebrew language. One of these days, when the scripture readings come, particularly that last one right before this reading, this scroll will be opened And our children will read the text from the Hebrew. And they will open the Gospels and read the text from the Greek. And they will know the Word of God in that context. Thirdly, the insights of Judaism and the focus on behavior, doing the Word, is really important. 
Christianity's turned itself into an apologetic nightmare. I see your verse and raise you too. As long as I believe the right thing, I'm okay. The Bible says the doer of the word is justified, not the hearer, and certainly not the arguer. We have really messed that one up. And we have to refocus on the land of promise. Now you know that I believe that each one of us should make one pilgrimage to the land of promise at least once in your lifetime to see that thing. Uh, Because the goal is to stay focused on what God is doing and what God ultimately will do will happen in that land. So, by reconnecting with the Jewish people, reconnecting with the Hebrew language, reconnecting with uh, Judaism in the good parts that it has maintained, and reconnecting to the land, we bring the context of these scriptures back into perspective so that the worldview that's contained in those things will become our worldview and will be transformed by the renewing of our mind. But we will only do that if we have a biblical mindset. What is the biblical mindset? I've told you that before, so I'm going to just quote it. won't make you turn to the verses. First one is found in James 4. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. The, the mindset that you should have is a mindset of humility. Knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. God gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. I'm amazed how just a little knowledge of the Bible turns somebody into an expert and a judge. I'm learning this for myself, that my household can learn to walk with God. And I'm telling you of my my process so that you can walk with God. But I'm not going to judge you. you. If you say, I don't care about this stuff, that's between you and God. There is a judgment coming. One of us will stand. One of us may not. Secondly, this is a walk by faith. Hebrews 11. Unless you believe that this really is from God, and if it really is from God, why would you want somebody to interpret it for you? Why wouldn't you want to read it for yourself? If your best friend in the whole world sent you a letter, and the letter came, and you said to me, I just got a letter from my best friend in the whole world, and I grabbed it and said, let me tell you what it says. You probably knocked me down trying to get that letter. Not in the church. We'll let the pastor tell us what the word says. We'll let the Bible teacher tell us what the word says. We'll let the commentator tell us what the word says. We're not going to read it ourselves. Third one. It's the doers of the word that are justified. Struggling to know the word and do it. Because it's in the doing that you get the experience. I talk about the scriptures like a rule book for a game. If you're going to play a game, you need to know what the rules are. And when you play the game by the rules, you get the experience the way the game creators intended it. When you follow the rules, you get the experience of life that God intended who created life. So, humility, faith, And obedience is the mindset that each of us should have. We need to put this in our minds. We need to live it in our homes. We need to reinforce it in our gatherings as a congregation. And starting next week, I'm going to go into the detail of what the worldview is in the scriptures, in the context I've just said, 
versus the worldview that you and I are up against in the American culture. Let's pray.